The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 10th chapter. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. Now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. When John heard in prison that the Messiah, what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me, the gospel of the Lord. The Apostle Paul offers to us a word today that was pretty shocking in his day and age. And probably, if we didn't know it and hadn't heard it before, might be shocking to us today as well. Although I have to confess, in the combination of its radical proclamation and my exhaustion from camp and from a training hike this week, I'm in a little bit of fear that I'm not going to do it justice. But... I don't think we can continue to have these transforming passages from Paul that we've had these last several weeks and not dig in to this rich word from Romans, which I think really, really encapsulates what it means to be a follower of Jesus in such a great way. But perhaps first we should set the scene for the first century world, and maybe in doing so, perhaps see a little bit of that first century world looking an awful lot like a mirror into our own world today, just about 2,000 years later. And that may give us even a hint into the power of sin which Paul talks about. He sees it as a power, a principality, not just a sort of an event that happens when we do something wrong and then, you know, we ask forgiveness or we don't or whatever happens after that, but really this power over all of us and over this whole world. Maybe it speaks to us that we can look in the mirror of almost any time and place and see this word making sense, hitting home once again. It's a strong and persistent slave owner is sin, which continues to come to us, to trick us, to invite us into things like order, self-righteousness, proper conduct, and ultimately what it wants to really do is tell us that it is what gives us identity. 
But let's not go there just yet. Paul is addressing Romans, he's addressing Greeks, he's, address, he's addressing his own Jewish brothers and sisters. Although he was both Roman and Jewish, if you know Paul's life, that's why he was so hard to kill, actually, true story. He would have been dead long before he was if he had just been, uh, had Jewish parents, but he had Roman and Jewish parents, so he was, had certain rights under the law. <laughs> But his audience is used to living by the law in all cases, whether Jewish, whether Roman, whether, whether Greek. Do this. Make this sacrifice. Pray here and in this way. Offer this in return for that. In the case of the Romans and the Greeks, there were many gods offering blessings for various issues in a kind of spiritual transaction. Give this and the God will return that. In the case of Paul's own Jewish faith, there were a variety of laws to be kept, from circumcision, which Paul uses as a metaphor in many places to talk, um, you know, um, to his faith brothers and sisters about what the true circumcision looks like in Christ. But there were also food laws and Sabbath laws and sacrificial laws, all kinds of things. Now, some of these practices in Paul's Jewish community had become oppressive. And we can see all kinds of places where Jesus is seen as corrupt by the law because he violates those laws, eating with sinners, turning over the tables at the sacrifice marketplace of the temple, eating and healing on the Sabbath, which were no-nos, and all kinds of other things that Jesus addresses. We can kind of see those things. And to be fair, they always creep in. The law always creeps in, no matter what the faith practice might be. We can see that in our own Reformation history, a big part of our, our Lutheran Christian history, our expression of Christianity, and really all Protestant uh, expressions of the faith. That oppressive nature, that law-first nature that the church can fall into as well. And so again, in any time, in any place, we can look in the mirror and see the oppression and the slavery of the law creeping in. Many of the sacrificial and other practices of the Romans and Greeks offered all kinds of oppression for those on the bottom and extravagance and abuse towards others for those on the top. Righteousness and reward for those who kept the law, often conveniently slanted toward them because they were also the interpreters of the law and even made the law. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes it seems that those who have the power also get to make the laws, right? And that can be a problem. But to those who will receive this word from Paul, he can say, you remember what this kind of allegiance led to, don't you? It led to death. They know, they've seen it, lived out. And I wonder if we can identify with this a little bit today. We like rules. We like laws. We like checking off how we have achieved them. We like identifying ourselves as more enlightened, more worthy, more better than those around us. I don't know if I just made that up, but it works, right? (laughs) We like that, and we do it an awful lot. I can't believe how stupid those people are. 
They're not enlightened like I am. I was just having a chat with one of our high school youth who was one of our just amazing counselors for our middle camp this past week. <clears throat> and uh, we were talking about, somehow we got into the, this conversation about, about how we esteem ourselves or how we look at ourselves kind of a thing. And I was telling her, you know, I have kind of this, this um, visual example of the difference between self-esteem and self-worth. Now, I have no problem you know, at, at root with either one of those words, but I kind of see the difference between uh, self-esteem and self-worth as being this. Self-esteem is like a whole bunch of coal in a coal mine. And all that coal is looking, you know, those pieces of coal are looking at the other pieces of coal and saying, I'm a diamond. And the other one is saying, no, I'm a diamond. And the other one is saying, no, 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 neither of you are diamonds, I'm a diamond. That to me is kind of the dark side of self-esteem, Right? Because the shortest distance to a high self-esteem is kind of on the backs of others. Not always the way we get there. I understand that. But it's the shortest distance. Self-worth, on the other hand, and I don't really like that term self part of it, but worth, perhaps, our worth, is more like God descending into the coal mine and looking at us as pieces of coal and saying, you're a diamond, you're a diamond, you're all diamonds to me. That's how I distinguish that. (laughs) Now, to be clear, Paul is not against stop signs. He's not against halls of justice. He's not against social order. He isn't proposing anarchy here by saying, we're no longer slaves to the law. Let's sin a lot. Let's finally be free of all this burden of the law. Let's just go crazy. But it seems he even addresses that in what he writes. He says, Last week and this week, he preempts the question that if there is no law, then why don't we just go on sinning like crazy so that grace may abound? I mean, wouldn't God love to do some more forgiving, right? Isn't that what God likes to do? So let's give God more opportunities to forgive. Like I said, it was at middle camp last week. Lots of opportunities for forgiveness. (laughs) Maybe on my part as as much as anyone's. He also, though, isn't seeing this obedience to Christ as somehow making sin go away. It isn't a magic trick, right? I know sometimes in our expression of the faith, we can think like, oh, we got baptized, we got saved, we, you know, like, now there's there's no sin anymore. Now we're free from that, and it doesn't exist in our lives. And if we sin, then we got to go back, and we got to, you know, do it all over again, right? We kind of turn that grace a little bit as I see it at least, into another law. No, in fact, in the next chapter, Paul will talk about his own struggle with with sin. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do are the things I keep doing. A lot of us understand that, and that's, I think, where we can see really where Paul sees this kind of principality of sin, the way it has its claws into us individually and as a society and as a world just so deeply. I bet all of us can think of a struggle that we have, a brokenness that we have, a thing that we keep returning to again and again that we want to break, and it just seems like we can't do it, at least not on our own. Paul struggled mightily with with sin um, as a taskmaster and also as a siren song. Sometimes it's a temptation as well. Oh, this will offer you identity. This will offer you freedom. 
come this way. I'll give you everything you need. And it just doesn't hold up. And indeed, in this life, we have such struggles. But perhaps the biggest lie come of, of sin comes in two parts. First is that sin is victorious, kind of that negative view of the world. How can I believe in, in a God, a higher power, in anything that is gracious and loving when the world is so messed up? Well, we could spend hours on that question. But I think Paul would simply say, Christ has overcome the world, and while that has not yet come in its fullness, it is already here. We can see the veil lifted on the curtain and know that God is not only with us, but that God is victorious over this incredible hold that sin and the law has on the world. But the second lie is a little bit more positive. The second lie is, I can fix this. Paul uses the language of slavery when he talks about sin, but he also uses it when he talks about the grace God shows in Christ, that we are slaves of righteousness. Now, I think that language can be pretty tough for us to swallow, and maybe part of that is because of what we picture when we think of slavery. But the tougher part for people in the first century, and perhaps even more for us, is that slavery suggests that we cannot fix it, that we are not in control. Law. One of its biggest purposes is to give us the impression that we can control. The irony of slavery to sin, in fact, its biggest trick, I think, is that we can achieve perfection. If we just do this, if we just have more of this, if we just whatever. We even do that in our, in our, in our kind of our faith life. If I just had more faith. If I just say the prayer right, or if I pray more, we kind of look even at faith itself as having something more, a greater quantity. But that's not what faith is about. It isn't the quantity of faith. Again, once we've said this many times, where Jesus says, if you had a mustard seed of faith, which if I held ten mustard seeds in my hand, you probably wouldn't be able to see them, right? And even that faith is a gift from God. I think that's the link between law and sin. If we can just do, if we can just have, if we can just keep, that's that link between law and sin. If we can just keep the law, that's the biggest brokenness we have. Keep this law and you will be justified. It looks like freedom, but it is quite the opposite. And it leads to a kind of, of pretty sometimes and even kind of orderly looking Lord of the Flies, which is what it really is at its root. It kind of reminds me of the Gaga Ball pit this week at, at Middle Camp. I don't know if you know what Gaga Ball is, but Gaga Ball is, is this um, kind of, um, this, this sort of octagon sort of thing, right? It's, it's protected by a fence, and you stand in there, however many people are standing in there, and you bounce this ball, and then what you do is you try to slap the ball underhand toward the uh, knee and below of other folks. And if you hit them at the knee or below, they are out. You can hit them in the front, you can hit them in the back, you can bounce it off the wall, you can hit them straight on. And what would happen is 
uh, the Gaga, Gaga Ball Pit was a very popular place, if you want to talk about Lord of the Flies, by the way. It was a very popular place to go, and it was a very popular place to go right after lunch when they had some free time. But right before lunch, we had what we called Jesus time. We had our devotional time. And so we would talk about caring for one another. And we would talk about the grace that God shows. And we would talk about what our identity in Christ looks like. And then we would have lunch. And they would go to the Gaga Ball Pit. And they would gang up on each other. Right? This this group, I I actually asked my, my daughter. I said, you know, there were a lot of crushes going on at camp this week. Or a few crushes going on at camp this week. I said, anything going on with you? And she said, not cabin 10. Cabin 10 was the big athletic, you know, older boys who were just gang up. Yes, I know, Victor, it was your cabin. I'm blaming you for this, sir. They would gang up on the weaker ones, and they would just slam away at them, and they would, you know, kind of come together, and I would think, okay, let's do Jesus time now, maybe. Maybe we need to go back to Jesus time. (laughs) Right. By contrast to all of this slavery to sin and the law, Being slaves of righteousness is really interesting language because it suggests that the righteousness is not your own. It's not in your control. It's not of your doing. It's not based on your worth. And that's a little bit hard to swallow. To be a slave is to be owned by something or someone outside of yourself. And perhaps that is kind of the key to all of this. The righteousness isn't yours, but Christ's. The perfection is not yours, but Christ's. The obedience is not yours, but it is Christ's unto death. And on and on it goes. And so Paul speaks in truth that this is slavery, this is submission, this is complete ownership by Christ over our whole selves, over all of who you are. But truthfully, It's the most complete freedom at the same time because it delivers us from the slavery that leads to death. Now we do not live according to the scorekeeping of the law, but as ones made right, sanctified, which means to be set apart. Set apart for what? To live according to the gift or to the grace that we have received as a free gift. I kind of like to think of it this way, and again, I'm really focused on our younger people this week because I've hung out with them quite a bit. But I remember uh, occasionally kids would come down the hallway in between services and they would say, Pastor Jonathan, I'm so tired. Do I have to go to confirmation today? And I would say, no, you don't have to go to, really? I don't have to go? And I said, no, you get to go. (laughs) Yeah. And there is a little room for the law here. Remember I said Paul didn't hate the law, the order, and that kind of thing. And I said, by the way, if your parents say you do have to go, I'm going to back them up because, you know, fourth commandment and all that kind of stuff. But I said, you get to go. This, this is, it's a privilege to go. What you're learning, and, and, and 9.30 wasn't the best time to do this. I get that. We do it differently now. But, but what you're learning, what, what is coming into you is, will seep into your bones. And it may seem like something you have to do now, but... But I can tell you it's going to be something that will bless you beyond what you can imagine at this time. I've also had the question for folks at the end of their life. You know, they've lived maybe not according to, (laughs) you know, being enslaved to Christ's righteousness. And they've lived this life that's not been a blessing perhaps in many ways. 
And I've had this question, and there's, there's sort of this question of right and wrong, and is this just and is this fair? Fairness is a big thing when you're growing up. Well, what about those people who have deathbed confessions? How come, does God save them? Is that, that's not fair. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, it isn't fair. It isn't fair that they didn't have this word of grace. It isn't fair that they didn't have this freedom their whole life like you have it. That isn't fair at all. They didn't get it until it was the last part of their life. And they finally could see, oh, man, I've been living in slavery to sin and not in slavery to Christ and his righteousness. What a blessing that you have. What a, you know, that you have this now and can live this out your whole life. And then they say, that's not what I meant. And I say, I know. But it's true. You, brothers and sisters, are freed in Christ. As we celebrate the freedom of our nation, we celebrate the freedom we have by knowing that we are not the ones who are, make ourselves perfect. We are the, not the ones who make ourselves justified. We are not the ones who, by the law, will achieve anything other than disappointment. We are truly freed by being subject to Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, who has freed us from death and brought us to life to give that grace which we have received as a gift in Christ Jesus. Amen.